0: G'day, it's Phil here. Last time, I started to get to know Nicole Dyson, the founder of Future Anything, of YouthX, of Catapult Cards, of any number of tremendous initiatives around youth entrepreneurship, youth leadership, youth voice, and advocacy. We started to talk about the development of character and the formation of a person through their early lives, and and Nicole was good enough to share a whole bunch of stuff. I'm really excited today because we're going to take that conversation further and we're going to look at the way in which Nicole became an educator and what an educator. I'm excited. I can't wait. Let's go. Before you start your conversation with today's Game Changers special series guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our special series sponsor? Thanks Adriana. Of course I can. Man Cave Academy provides unique training programs that are designed to share the Man Cave's experience from working with over 20,000 teenage boys across Australia. Learn more at themancave.life. That's themancave.life. Let's go. Hello, Nicole. How are you?
1: Hey, Phil. I'm really, really good. I'm looking forward to sort of picking out where we left off and, and continuing the conversation.
0: Thank you very much. Well, let's dive in straight away, shall we? And that was a swimming analogy. That's a dad joke. So there we go. Um, (laughs) um, Where we left off last time was around the time that you're finishing up school and you had a pretty intense three-year program in your senior. You were doing um, state-level swimming. You were doing challenging STEM subjects. You were um, dealing with some stuff that was happening in your family at that time. Let's talk about your transition out of school and into your further study. Do you you want to, do you want to pick the story up from where we were last time perhaps?
1: Yeah. So I think um, I remember I was working quite a few part-time jobs at the time. So given that, you know, we didn't have a lot of money at home, um, I'd sort of, I picked up a job at pizza hut, like cutting pizzas. um, And I was also working at a a pet store as well. um, And at that point in time, I think, as as a lot of young people do at that particular age, I thought that I wanted to be a vet when I left school, and um, and certainly that was an approved occupation from from my parents' point of view to sort of study to be a vet. So when I left, the intention was for me to to move into that career. I didn't get the OP that I that I needed. Um, I, I needed a one to get into vet. It was one of the most sort of competitive careers to step into in university and. I got an eight, which I was pretty proud of, given everything that I was juggling at the time around work and swimming and, you know, my family and, and, and everything else. So I sort of enrolled. There was no option for me not to enroll um, in university. It was it was being the eldest, you kind of do what you're told. And the expectation was that I would move straight from school into university. Um, and so I remember doing the QTAC preferences, but I kind of felt like I was, writing down things or or putting down things that would make my parents proud. I'm not sure that at that particular point in time, I was doing any real self-reflection around what I loved or or where I might like to go. And I I look at that a lot in the young people that I've worked with through that senior schooling experience. They're so disempowered um, or disengaged from their sense of self that they're disempowered from the process of choosing their future and they make choices that they feel are right from a, a public point of view rather than feel right from a self point of view. And I, I was certainly guilty of that at that age. So I remember jumping into a Bachelor of Applied Science because that was the the sort of, I knew that I could cover off a few of the science subjects to move into VET. It was a good you know, um, launch pad into that course. And I did six months and just didn't love it. And, you know, I should have known because I always got so much more joy out of the humanities subjects. I did ancient history and I loved that at school and and English and I I loved that. So it shouldn't have been a surprise that the subjects that I I didn't love at school, which were those sort of chemistry and physics and math, B subjects, that I wouldn't enjoy them when I moved to university. But I didn't, I don't know, for whatever reason at that point in time, I didn't feel like I had. I was armed with the knowledge to make an informed decision about my likes and dislikes and, and use them to inform my future. It just kind of felt like you made those decisions based on what was the right thing to do rather than what was the right thing for you to do. So I did about, uh, applied science for six months, didn't love it. So I changed into another course thinking that I might get greater engagement in that. For the record, a Bachelor of Science is not that different to a Bachelor of Applied Science. So it was no surprise that six months into a Bachelor of Science, I didn't really love that one either. And so I I sort of worked for a little while after that um, and then did what most young people do when they feel a little bit lost and confused about life. I kind of packed the bag and and went overseas. (laughs) And that was how I (laughs) tried to, you know, make some sense of the world and, and where I might fit in it.
0: Do you know there's there's enormous parallels there with um, uh, with the boys from uh, from year thirteen who are the other um, uh, the, they're your colleagues on this on this special series uh, Will and Saxon um, again talking about that very very difficult point of transition that students have. We know that one in four first year students drop out of their course by the end of their first year. Um, we know that the the point of transition is very, very difficult for young people. We know there's all sorts of mental health stuff happening, which is not proof all it's mainstream. Um, you know, we know that um, you know one in two students, by the time they're eighteen, will have had it at some sort of clinical episode of 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 mental health um, difficulty, um, uh, and and we know that for many, many young people, that transition from the structure of school and that sort of close environment there to the big wide world of tertiary study where people don't really care and you have to work it out yourself and whatever it is you thought you were going to do at the age of 16 and a half by the time you're 18 you're going what am I doing and why am I doing this and what does that look like and it's hard isn't it you obviously made a decision it wasn't for you and then you packed your bags and off you went and that's a that's a very strong decision to make how did you work through to get to where you needed to get to?
1: Yeah, look, I think if I reflect back now, fundamentally what I was struggling with in in those first couple of forays into the real world of tertiary education was that none of it felt real. Like I remember sitting in the classroom um, or in the lecture theatre or wherever I was, and it just felt so far removed from any sort of life or career that I wanted to have. And and that's where I struggled. Um, I struggled to get the relevance out of that learning experience. And because I wasn't entirely committed, I think, deep down, you know, um, the concept of being a vet and a life of science wasn't necessarily something that I was especially tapped into from a soul connection point of view. That The fact that I was also now sitting in these classrooms learning about things that, A, I didn't care about and, B, I didn't know how I'd ever use again. And that's been a really formative, I think, Error point that I keep coming across and has been formational, I guess, in my journey moving forward. But what's interesting too is like, I think I was still like a compliant, diligent kid at that age. And even the decision to move overseas wasn't my own. And I remember my best friend at the time decided that she was going to go overseas and said, You should come. And I kind of just did what I was told in that scenario too. So, up until this age of like 19, I was kind of, I wasn't really living my life. I was kind of doing what other people thought I should be doing at that point in time.
0: So how did you make that decision to move from compliant Nicole to Nicole steps out to do her own thing? And what did that feel like? And yeah, like it's, 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 it's an yeah. interesting point, isn't it? It's an interesting point in that life, isn't it? Where you go from the expression of duty, which is the replication of the expectation of others, which is the external, yeah. to the expression of, of duty as a calling, which is the realisation of that inner self.
1: Mm. Yeah, I um, I think we have inciting incidents in life. I think if we map back, and I, I'd love to ask you when you said that there were changing points at year, at, when you were 10 years old, and you said that you decided to sort of work harder and not rely on that sort of natural genius you had. And at 15, you sort of made some different decisions to your parents about your direction in high school. I, I often think that they... And, and maybe if there were inciting incidents for you that were the inflection points. Um, certainly for me, there's there's always been an inciting incident that then then has created an inflection. And for me, that moment was uh, I was in London, and my best friend who I'd travelled, we'd done we'd done a camp America, so we'd gone to the states and and done three months or four months in America, and we'd moved to London. And um, whilst I was over there, she had had to come home uh, for for a family. Things to come back for and um, in the meantime I was like just struggling by myself I'd never really had to do life by myself independent I didn't know anybody in London anybody who's lived over there it's miserable weather it's dark all of the time um, you leave the house in the dark and you come back in the dark and you know earning money as a backpacker is is challenging um, in that space and um, and I, I was finding it really hard and At that time, my grandmother um, and my mum had had come over to the the UK to visit me and I'd gone with them to Harrods, which was a very touristy thing to do. So we went to Harrods and we had, you know, high tea and they were having a wander around the shops. And while I was there, I I took a phone call from my friend who sort of just said to me um, in no uncertain terms that she wasn't returning. She was just going to stay at home Um, and she wasn't coming back. And she was supposed to be returning in a week and it was going to be my birthday's in December. So she was going to be back for my birthday and Christmas. So I'd kind of been hanging on for the fact that she was going to return for, for all of those significant moments, I think in the back end of the year for me, and I wouldn't have to do those alone. Um, And I remember hanging up the phone and I was sitting on a step and I just sort of had one of those, oh, like a, a, a pretty much a panic attack. I remember thinking, I can't do this by myself. Like, I don't know anybody here. I have next to no money. At the time I was like, re-toasting my housemate's bread that they'd thrown out like they would throw out bread that they thought was a little bit stale I would chuck it in the freezer refree and then toast it and eat it like I was finding all sorts of ways to kind of save money and and make it work in the UK at the time and I remember having just a a panic attack about the fact that I can't do this and you know when my grandmother went back to Australia maybe I'd just fly home with them and, and just pull up stumps uh, and my grandmother came over to me and she said, "What's wrong?" And I sort of explained the phone call that I had just taken, and I was getting quite upset um, in the phone call. And my grandmother's <laughs> just such a um, she's so commanding in in the way that she even even you know even now, as like an eighty nine year old who's been quite unwell, she still just holds space. and um she kind of looked at me and went, "All right, and then just walked off. Didn't say anything else. And I remember sitting on this step being, really shattered by the fact that I was so upset and she could just walk away from me in that moment and and provide no support. And about 15 minutes later, she returned and she kind of just shoved this Harrods bag in front of me. Um, And I remember looking up at her because I was still sitting on the step feeling really sad and sorry for myself. Like I was in a nice deep hole that I just like carved out a home in. And she said, um, you know, here, take this. And I went, I don't don't understand. What is it? She said, just open it up. And she was being (laughs) really really I thought harsh in my head I was like where is the empathy here um can't you see that I'm upset like I was in a world of hurt and um I opened it up and there was like an I've still got it there was an an iPod in there and for those listening who who are (laughs) are younger than me we used to have music on these iPods that we would play from (laughs) and um I just and, they, they, and they, they,
0: and, and they looked a bit like a phone, except they weren't a phone. Yeah. They just had music <laughs> exactly. on them.
1: Yeah. Look, I'll, um, I'll post a photo for everyone for, to see the artifacts, like if you're unfamiliar with the technology from way back. But she, um, she just gave it to me and, and said, um, I said, I don't understand. And she said, this is your something good. And I went, I still don't understand. And she said, whenever something bad happens, there's always something good that happens. You just have to be patient enough to wait for it. And she said, you've had a bit of a hit today and I wanted you to get you something good. So this is it. This is today's something good. And I've kind of, it was, it was a pivotal moment where I kind of thought, um, and it makes me emotional thinking about it. I kind of thought, oh, maybe I can do hard things, you know? And, um, And now whenever there are challenges that happen, I kind of always sit in that space and go, okay, like I can't see the something good right now, but I know that it'll be around the corner.
0: Yeah, it's it's a really interesting one about those pivotal moments. Yeah, I, I think, uh, I don't know, I had uh, my 18th birthday was a really interesting day for me because I, I was pretty young when I went to uni. I was I, I, I barely, you know, barely 17 and a half. Um, and I walked in there and my mates being the idiots that they are decided they would play a prank on me. And so they said, you know, turn up for breakfast and, you know, we're all going to wear loud shirts and that sort of thing. So I turned up and they weren't there. And they were there actually, they were around the corner, but they were just hiding, weren't they? And uh, so I sat and waited and uh, and they weren't there. So I went off to my lecture and they sort of wanted to come and find me, but I would disappeared by then. And um, I'm sitting in a lecture theatre with a 1,000 baby lawyers at the University of Sydney and I'm looking around going, I don't want to be a lawyer. I don't want to be one of these mm. people. I don't want to spend my life with these people. What am I going to do? Mm. And on the same day I'm thinking, and I don't want to spend my life with these friends because they're not worth it. Um, so what do you do? And what? Do you, and look, I look, I had no answers at all for for a couple of years and got really quite lost. I sort of managed to just hang on to my just hang on to my uh, my uni marks enough and and so on. I'd been I was supposed to go overseas for a gap year kind of thing or at least a trip of some sort, and that fell through too. Um, I, I was. You know, it was towards the end of second year. I found I was up late one night getting drunk with my best mate and he said, uh, you wouldn't have the guts to join the Army, would you? And Because and, he'd already joined. And, um, mm-hmm. and I said, right, I'll show you sort of thing, and I went and signed up the next day, didn't I? Because that's what you do when you're 19, you don't think about these things very quickly. And, and I, was, uh, I was skinny and I wasn't particularly fit and I was nerdy and, and with glasses and all that sort of thing. It's not really the personality or the physical type that goes with the Army, but, gee, that was a challenge I needed and it was so helpful for me. I mean, I, I spent eight years um, serving um, both part-time and full-time in that sort of way. My I think my gap year was spent, you know, working on, on Army sort of things, you know. And I ended up taking that in the middle of my degree and doing some teaching and so on. And I just kind of f- fell into my life around that. But those points of inflection, those moments in your life, um, they're all, they have to be emotional. They're not just a co- they're not a cognitive exercise. They've got to rock your world really, because unless your world is rocked, then how would you know what your world could be instead? And then you've got to find your way through. You've got to find your way out. And I know we talk with kids about this now when we talk about the notion of a learning pit don't we where mm-hmm. you know yeah. you know you fall into a learning pit and there are people around the outside who'll give you advice but you have to work your own way out um uh, and mm-hmm. if we don't have those moments in our lives you know maybe we'll never grow to be the people that we need to be um and we, we won't be able to thrive and, and maybe if we if we just reflect back on on childhood there for a moment maybe that's why if, if we're surrounded only with influences that seek to nurture and protect us from the world, we'll never be ready for it. So you're over in the UK; things are pretty tough. You make the decision you're going to carry on through, and so on and so on. Talk us through the journey about how you get from there mm. to educate your you further education yeah. and and finding your place as an educator.
1: Yeah I think um, I was splitting my time overseas once I sort of committed to staying I was splitting my time between London and also America I was returning to the summer camp uh, in Michigan each year to sort of work for eight to ten weeks on a swimming dock teaching swimming Um, and so you'd live in these cabins for it was a four-week camp so you'd have a, a cabin full of girls for four weeks at a time and this was back before technology so the only way that you communicate with the outside world was you know to make an international phone call like from like the office or to like write a letter and it was the same for the girls and there was a boys camp on the other side of the of the like on the camp as well and um I just remember the first year that I had campers I was working with 11 year olds and I found that really challenging but The second year that I returned to the camp, I was working with sort of that 15, 16-year-old age group. And I remember finding a lot of joy in uh, seeing the growth of young people at that age group over the course of that four weeks. And perhaps partly because, you know, in my youth and, and going through high school, when things got really tough at home, it was there were a few external people who, you know, were not obligated to love me that kind of supported me anyway. And I, I really, I probably needed those people at that point in my life, um, showing me that I was like worthy of, of love and and worthy of, of getting better and doing better and being more. And so the opportunity as a camp counselor to kind of maybe provide that coaching and support and guidance was something that I got a lot of joy out of. And I think if I sort of see the through line, um, like I loved swimming coaching uh, because you could sort of unlock the capacity of a young person to do more than they could do before. Um, and so, you know, through that camp experience, I then started to wonder if, if maybe teaching might be something I might get some joy out of and I could kind of use that same passion for unlocking the potential of young people, but, but do that in the classroom at the same time. So I sort of finished up a couple of years overseas and came back and and enrolled in a a Bachelor of Education. And I picked PE as as my first subject, mainly because, ironically, I hated PE in school. (laughs) But There was a little stubborn part of me that thought if I could get young people to love being active and love PE at school, I would almost subvert the experience that I had in high school of PE only being for, like, the elite athletes. Like I was great in the water, but I suck on land. Like put me in any other sporting field and I'm horrible. So um and then the second subject that I picked was English because I just I love language. And I think that there's, you know, a lot of the 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 challenges that we have in our world can be so beautifully articulated through through writing. And so you know the ability to unlock the love of reading that I have um, and the love of language that I have with young people was something that I found really compelling. Um, so as a mature age student, I jumped back into the <laughs> back into university and kind of <laughs> tried to navigate that space with all of the very eager seventeen year olds that just that had just finished school.
0: <laughs> of course you were a mature age student, weren't you? And you, you, you loved it, <laughs> didn't you? You stuck your hand up and you asked questions and you were absolutely into it. And the reason was you had found your purpose. You had wandered through that learning pit and you'd found your way out and you were deeply, deeply connected in a way that you hadn't been um beforehand um and and i think that i think that's a very very common experience for so many young people i really do wonder why we perpetuate this crazy crazy structure this pathway where we 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 ask kids to make decisions way too young about what they're going to do and how they're going to do it i mean look in in other parts of the world it's even worse you know you you look at the uk Mm -hmm. and they're doing they're doing competitive examinations at the age of 10 or 11 to determine essentially which academic stream they're going to go in which is then going to determine which university that and and you just it's 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 nuts it's crazy that the the journey of a lifetime you know the 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 pathway to excellence it's you do it one step at a time and 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 people are ready when they're ready um to do Mm. things um along the way i i certainly know that when i from the moment I set foot in a classroom and started doing that, and when I started coaching cricket and rugby and debating and all of those sorts of things that I did along the way, I just loved it. I loved every mm. second of it. Um, I also knew twenty years later, when I'd had enough of doing that as well too, mm. but yeah. by then i discovered a love for teaching adults. You know, and 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 I really like I love doing that now. I get to do that every day now, which is which is fabulous as part of my job. Um, and, and part of what I do around that. So you rock into an education degree. You do the things that you need to do there. You move on through. Walk us through, if you like, your early years, you know, the, the, your early years as a teacher. Where did you find yourself? What were you doing? What was lighting the passion inside you at that point?
1: Yeah, look, I um in my last year of university, I, like, broke up with a, a long-term partner. It was literally, like... <laughs> in the last eight weeks maybe of my degree and I remember that really rocking me I sort of didn't see it coming Um, we'd been living together it was sort of a three and a half year relationship it was it was supposed to be the one you know and um, I remember my friends having to you know my university friends my my now my colleagues I guess and my peers in the profession Man, did they drag me through, like, the last part of that degree. Like, they made sure I showed up to lectures. They made sure I handed stuff in. Like, I really, um, you know, was, was really stumbling in, in that final semester. Um, and I sometimes it makes me reflect now on how COVID has changed the, the tertiary sector with so much online. I think the reason that I stayed in teaching through the challenges or stayed in education was because of, particularly in those early years, those relationships I had with my peers um, from university. And I wonder if we take these, um, like if we make learning remote in the tertiary sector, what that does for those early networks that young people build in their professions um, in the university. And it's something that I've, I've wondered for a period of time, what that impact has on the way that we connect to the profession when we leave, because certainly when I left, like my network were my peers that I'd studied um, at QUT with, and and they were the people that kind of troubleshooted those early years for me while I was trying to work out who I was as an educator and where I sit and what part of education I loved. Um, so my first gig, like after that, I kind of uh, threw my hands up in the air and when I'm not doing teaching, and I actually didn't take a job until, I think it was week eight of, um, of the term, and it was like an 11-week term, and if you speak to any educators in Queensland about that 11-week term, everybody, before COVID, it was the term that everybody remembered as being, you know, one of the most traumatic experiences ever. And so I, I sort of started my teaching degree in Caboolture at Talong High, and look, I'd done some tough cracks. I'd, I'd worked in sort of some interesting areas, but nothing prepared me for being, you know, the teacher in the classroom, working in an area that has sort of a... A generational dependency on welfare a real disengagement with education as something valuable and and young people to be honest that are uh, coping with external circumstances that young people just shouldn't have to deal with at that age so I think you know that experience for me was hugely instrumental in forming my perceptions of education because I very quickly had to work out what was important in the classroom um, was it order and silence and churning through work and examination results or, you know, for me it became more about did the young people feel safe in the room? Could we respect one another? Like what what were the expectations that we could set that were reasonable that would enable us to learn together? You know, it didn't matter to me whether they had, a belt, you know, the school belt on or the right socks. Like really it was did they show up and, and were they prepared to sort of have a go at learning that day? And so for me, like I quickly developed like two rules for the classroom and I've kind of kept those same two rules, regardless of if I'm working with young people now or adults. (laughs) And the first one was we listen when somebody's speaking to us because I I sort of believe that the way we honour others is by holding space for them while they share. And the second rule was if you waste time, you pay it back. And um, I learned that lesson over and over every time I procrastinate (laughs) now. (laughs) So And then from there, I sort of took a, uh, like moved through another couple of schools, but I just found myself gravitating towards, in my second year, I took a year coordinator position um, and from there I moved into a head of year role and I was really caught up in like that welfare space and that pastoral care space. Like how do we create the environment for young people to engage in learning? Because if we don't get the environmental stuff right and the support stuff right and the relationship stuff right... It doesn't matter how great the curriculum is, and it doesn't matter how great the pedagogy is, and it doesn't great matter how great the teacher is. Um, doesn't matter how great the technology is. It doesn't matter, like how amazing the Kahoot quiz is that you build. Like none of that stuff matters if that young person doesn't have the space and the safety to, to sit there and, and feel ready to learn.
0: Helping people to feel that sense of welcome, that sense of belonging, is absolutely essential. You know, if we don't if we don't allow people to feel as though they belong, they're never going to achieve their potential. And if they're not, if they don't feel as though they belong and achieving their potential, it's, it's, it's very, very hard for them to go on and do stuff, which is good and right in the world. To me, the correlation between being challenged in terms of where you come from and how you feel as though you fit in or don't fit in, um, and, and as you said, where you've got, you know, intergenerational dependence on, on, on welfare and any other number of social calamities that go with that as mm. well too. And then you end up grouping all of those kids in a particular school. You must end up with a group of kids, a whole group of kids who feel as though they just don't belong. No one cares about them. No one loves them and so on. So then that challenge of building relationship is, is to convince them that they are known and that they are loved but then at the same time, we have to talk to them about being respectful as well, too, which is hard to do because, you know, you're coming from uh, a significant disadvantage there, particularly if you feel as though you haven't been respected all your life and you're young and you're angry and, and all the rest. There's an enormous amount of, um, I guess, empathy and understanding that's required under those circumstances is that something which just came to you naturally where you did you always feel that type of connection or is is that something again that you had to work out and think about and reflect on and and grow in
1: yeah I I, look I, I remember um you know when I first stepped in the classroom because I I couldn't control the learning environment like these I think I was their third or fourth teacher in that first term. So they'd had this revolving door of educators who have walked in and then walked right back out. And I think they thought it was going to be the same um, for me, which is, is so commonplace, particularly for, for our regional schools, um, with such a high staff turnover, the young people just, you're not going to stay. And so therefore they, they don't want to invest in you because they know that you're not going to invest in them. Um, and I, I remember what, feeling coming home one day, and crying because it was, firstly, it was really hard. It was way harder in the in the classroom than I thought it was going to be. And then secondly, because I'd turned into somebody that I didn't think I wanted to be, like I found myself in trying to get control, I was yelling in the classroom to try and bring them back. And I, I came home and I just remember feeling so gutted that I was replicating maybe some of the experiences that they were having at home, you know, adults around them, perhaps at home, were yelling and using aggression and these like very overbearing like methodologies in order to regain control in a situation and in my own panic and insecurity and frustration I was also then defaulting to some of those same techniques in order to, to bring to to create I don't know what I thought I was going to get out of that control I think more than anything else. Um, and so I remember, you know, walking back into the classroom the next day and going, do you know what? Like the, the one rule that I'm going to have and, uh, and full stop will be that I'm not going to speak if, if somebody's speaking in the classroom. I just won't do it. I'll wait. And um, I walked into the classroom, I started reading the role and um, I just stopped talking every time somebody in the classroom spoke. <laughs> I think it took us 45 minutes to take the role. <laughs> like, it was just one of the most painful experiences. Um, and I want to say, you know, from that moment onwards, it was like a real kumbaya moment and we all sort of sat around the campfire and sang songs and it was a real turning point. But it was still a hard slog to build those relationships. But by just making a decision that I wasn't going to yell, I was just going to wait Changed the tone and changed the game. I think for me, and, and still to this day, whether whether I'm working with 30 kids in the classroom or 90 Year Six boys, as it was two days ago, if if there's anybody speaking, like I'm happy to just wait until they're ready to rejoin the conversation, and then I'll recommit to the learning once they've recommitted to the space.
0: Yeah, that's um that, that again. It's uh, thank you for sharing that. That's a that's a that's a deeply vulnerable moment for a teacher around that um again, there's a moment that I'm thinking about right now where I learned not to exercise sarcasm with a year 10 boy mm. who really needed my help. And instead I just turned my relationship with him into a power game. And, and, you know, he ended up saying, you know, I said to him, why did not you get this done? He said, well, I didn't know you meant it because I never know when you're being serious. Cause you're always sarcastic to me. I never know where I stand with you and so on, so on. And gee, God, feel ashamed about that now gee didn't i feel ashamed about that at the time too but you know that there are those who will 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 tell you that you know i I, i'm still quick to lose my temper on things and i'm still quick to to get angry and 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 uh and to a certain extent the sharpness um that is there in one respect is both a strength and a weakness because every strength is a weakness and every weakness is a strength every opportunity is a threat and every threat's an opportunity isn't it and and so so we wrestle with these things all through our life don't we 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 wrestle with our personality and then how best to express our character and we think we think we've fixed something and then we come back and we discover actually no i'm still me and i've still got work to do you know i'm 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 in the middle of a moment right now i'm deeply deeply offended by somebody who i believe has acted without integrity right now and i'm hot i'm angry about it right now and i know that the way i should respond is with a more dispassionate fashion Around it, but I can't do it right now. I just, I, I'm finding it difficult to forgive because I, I and uh, uh, you know, that's 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 where I am and, and what I do. And here I am talking to people about practicing emotional self-regulation and all of that sort of stuff. And I'm just, I'm you know, we we wrestle. But we, we don't should.
1: get it right all the time. All yeah. Right, and don't. I think, you know, I can, I can share that story and it'd be, I'd be lying if I said that I haven't raised my voice at a young person or a room of young people since, cause I have, you yeah. know, sometimes we get tired and we get frustrated and we default to those, um, those mechanisms that, that in those moments of weakness. And I think that the power is learning from those. And just like you said, like you feel that sense of like shame about maybe that moment of sarcasm with that young person, like, as educators, we carry all those moments with us, right? And they're, they're often really close on the surface. So yeah. I can think back to all of the moments in recent years where I've where I've perhaps lost my temper or, or I've expressed frustration with a young person. And, you know, even though in the moment you kind of move on, you never really let go of those moments. You carry the, where you feel like you might have let let them down where you feel like you've let a young person down you you carry them with you um and you just hope that you get better at recognizing it earlier in the moment or creating space between yourself and the frustration point but i mean we don't nail it every time
0: do you know this might be a funny point for us to 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 sort of draw things to a close today but actually there's a reason why i want to do it. it it's um one of the things i get frustrated about in in particularly in the world that we have today is when People have to present themselves and they have to present this 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 sort of c v avatar of themselves and i 'm this and i 'm this, this, this and I'm this and I've won this and I've done this and i this and I'm on the world stage and i 'm doing this da, 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 da. actually I think the true expertise the true adaptive expertise and self efficacy of a of a of a master teacher is somebody who's in a moment that you were just then in that moment where you're actually pausing to reflect and to contemplate on the uncertainty and the growth that's still there and the bit that you haven't quite got right. And I'm very suspicious of people who have the answer. I'm deeply respectful of people who are still working through what that answer is. I really love the way in which you model that notion of being a a continuous learner and unlearner i mean you model all of the other graduate outcomes of of a school of school for tomorrow but look shall we draw up stumps there for, for yes. this week and then perhaps next week we might come back and talk about your growth from being in the classroom and doing fabulous work there in schools um to working with schools and with the programs that you're doing would that, would that work for you nicole
1: yeah that sounds great
0: awesome we'll talk then